Let's see, this morning, I'm sorry, let me get this in front of me here. This morning, we're going to continue our journey uh, through a series that we started last week about the notion of God as our refuge. What does it mean for God to be our refuge? How is God a refuge in an uncertain and unsafe world? This morning, you look in your bulletin, you'll see a summons to the word. That summons we use as a way of awakening us to the fact that what we're about to do isn't just some lecture. It's not just some uh, exercise in historical inquiry. It's not just even some good piece of good advice. That actually what we're about to do, what is happening here is we're being summoned to hear a word from the Lord. A word from our God. A word from the one who gave his life for us. So let's read these words taken from Psalm 19. I will never forget your commands. They make me wiser than my enemies. Your word is a lamp for my feet. It is a light for my path. Well, again, um, um, as, we, as we examine the text this morning, we're going to be in the Psalms for the most, pretty much the rest of the, the fall. This first, uh, this first uh, exploration of the Psalms is taken from Psalm 9. And I'll introduce it uh, more, a little more in a little bit, but I'm just going to read the text now. And this is the word of the Lord. It's on, it's on page 466 of your pew Bible. If you would like to follow along, 466. It's Psalm chapter 9. I'm going to read the first 12 verses, although as I preach through, I'll reference some of the verses outside of that. So again, Psalm 9, hear now the word of the Lord. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High, my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my right and my cause, sitting enthroned as the righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken my enemies. You have uprooted their cities, even the memory of them has perished. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the peoples with equity. The Lord, excuse me, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing the praises of the Lord enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. For he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, Just as a way of reminding us what we're doing this fall, we're seeking to ask this question, how, what does it look like to, what does it mean to find a refuge uh, in God? And I was, this week as I was thinking about that, I was, um, this is just kind of how my brain works. I was was reminded of a movie um, that came out probably, I think, 20, 25 years ago. I'm sure most of you remember or you've seen sequels of it. It It's called Jurassic Park. And uh, in that particular, at the end of the movie, you have these, these dinosaurs, and kids, you can listen to this, these dinosaurs are they're smaller than a T-Rex, but they are uh, more lethal, I might say, than a T-Rex. They're, they're, they're deadly, and they're called velociraptors. 
And in this particular scene, uh, they have the two adults and these children who are fleeing or running away from these velociraptors. And they happen to go, they're in this building, and they happen to go into the kitchen area, if I remember right. It's a kitchen area. And they're trying to figure out where are we going to go. We can't outrun them. Uh, we need some sort of refuge from uh, these, these dinosaurs because they're going to eat us alive, right? And so what they do is they find this ladder, and they climb up into, they climb up the ladder, and then the ceiling is one of those ceilings where you can, like, take the panels and, like, like move it and climb up into the ceiling. And so they do that. They grab the ladder and they go up into the ceiling to escape, hoping that the velociraptors will not notice that they're above them. And, uh, and they get up and they, they knock over the ladder and they climb up there and they start climbing along you know, on, in, in the ceiling. And, uh, and of course, um, the velociraptors figure out that they're up there because they're, they're really smart dinosaurs. And they, they go to a kind of attack one of them. And one of, one of the, the girl, she falls like, you know, through one of the, one of the panels. And she's, uh, she's holding on to, 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 the, to the, you know, the, 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 the bar. And you can see the, and what, what happens was that the dinosaur actually comes up into the ceiling. One of the guys kicks the dinosaur, it falls down, but she falls, but hanging on, right? So you see, you look down, the camera's looking down, and you see the velociraptor having fallen down, kind of scrambling to get up, and she's hanging there. And this is, if I just take, pause out, you know, pause for a second, when I was a kid in high school, one of the things that we loved to do most, we would go to the opening night of a movie. So this movie dates all the way back to my high school years, like you know, four or five centuries ago. And, uh, and, it, um, and I remember opening night going to, going to Jurassic Park. We were so excited. This new movie was coming out, Steven Spielberg, great graphics, all this sort of stuff. And, I, and, and, the, and the, entire, the entire movie theater was packed. I mean, it was just packed. And I, when that moment came, and the camera's looking down, and she's hanging there, and they're trying to pull her up. And the velociraptor is you know, kind of laying down and trying, scrambling to get up. They start to pull her up. The velociraptor gets up and jumps up after the girl to try to catch her. And like everyone in the movie theater grabbed their legs and went like this. <laughs> This moment of like, we're so into the movie, we're like, oh, oh like trying to climb to get away to seek refuge from this, this, this uh, you know, this lethal uh, dinosaur, right? This lethal uh, reptile. But it, it beautifully illustrates this idea of refuge, okay? This idea of refuge is an escape from something that's incredibly dangerous. And this is what's so important. The danger doesn't leave. It doesn't go away. You just actually have a measure, there's a safety from it. Okay, does that make sense? There's been a, a um, if you will, there's been a, um, something has happened that removes the possibility or the immediate possibility of danger. In fact, in, in Hebrew, the word for refuge is misgav. And it literally means an inaccessible place. Does that make sense? In fact, sagav in Hebrew means to, to, be, um, to be high above, to be out of reach. All right, so Stalgav, and then you add it in Hebrew, you add an M on the front, a meme, and add the M letter, and it becomes a place, a place that's out of reach. Does that make sense? So a refuge is this idea of you're, I'm climbing, I'm, I'm, I'm going up, I'm climbing up this ladder, and I'm up, and I'm in this place where the, the, the danger is still present, it's still real, but it's no longer able to destroy and this morning, I want to ask the question, how is God a refuge for the oppressed? Okay? How is God a refuge for those who have been deeply wronged? 
for those who have been abused, for those who have been exploited? How can he be a refuge? And this is so important because when we have been wronged deeply, and this may sound silly, I don't mean it's silly, that event, that relationship of abuse, of exploitation, of betrayal, is as lethal and as dangerous as a velociraptor. In fact, as, as a pastor, I do a lot of counseling over the years. And in most, most of my contexts are like this one, middle class, upper middle class, you know, somewhere in there. I, don't, I haven't been in the hood. I haven't been in a lot of different places. But it's amazing how you would think, oh, yeah, white picket fence, no abuse, no betrayal, no oppression. And, and that's what I thought. And I was wrong. I was just amazed. I was just incredibly wrong. So many, I just have sat across the, the room from so many people who've been hurt in such grievous ways. And this morning, again, I want us to ask this question because it's so important. When we are wronged, I mean deeply wronged, it becomes a defining event in our life. It becomes this, this thing that just, there was, there's life before that, there's life after that. Okay, and, let me, and, it, and it threatens to do two things, okay? First, when we are wronged, it, it threatens us. It, 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 it can make us feel worthless. Small. It can make us feel like we're damaged goods. I can remember a, a young man who came to me for counseling, and he started. He came, he came for a certain issue, and then he began to say, well, tell me some of your story. He began to tell me a story. And part of his story was, get this, this is, this, is, I'm not here to, this is not here to critique or condemn, just to describe, was that as a child, around 10 or 11, I don't know, right around that age, his parents divorced. And his mom told him, that the divorce was his fault. Now imagine, imagine, you're 9, 10, 11, 12, and your mom tells you that the divorce is somehow your fault. You know, children actually in divorce, in this situation of divorce, often children will assume it's their fault, wrongly. But to be told that explicitly, and uh, in fact, I, and I, of course, I started crying, I'm just weeping. And he, he looked at me and he said, well, why, why are you crying? Not recognizing all that had gone on. Right, right, and, and just from that, the sense of, he talked about how he just felt after that like he was the problem in life. Everywhere, every situation in which you, every relationship he would be in, he would be the problem. He felt worthless. He felt like damaged goods. Or there's another story. I can think of a young woman who shared with me about how... Um, Something happened to her as a child that no, nothing, no child should ever experience. I'm not going to go into the details. I'll let you imagine. But it was something from an adult. It was a terrible experience. She went and told her parents about it. And guess what they did? Nothing. They pretended like nothing happened. How do you think that made her feel? And when we are wronged and it's unaddressed, and, it, and there's this pretense that everything's okay, and we begin to wonder, am I actually, did I actually deserve that? Was I the cause of that? So again, when we are wronged deeply, it can bring us to a place of feeling worthless, small, damaged goods. But not only that, not only can, uh, can abuse and wrongdoing and injustice and oppression make us feel small, like we have no worth or no value, it can also make us, and we're perhaps more familiar with this idea, it can also make us incredibly, understandably angry, bitter, 
resentful. And again, it's understandable and it's even right. There's a real, we're going to see there's a real place for that anger. But you know what? So often, bitterness and anger, resentment, those are things that are just dangerous in the sense they can come to eat us alive. Again, I know you know how many times I've been in counseling and, and, and the counselee will say to me, they'll just share with me wrongs that were done to them decades ago. Decades, like 15, 20, 25 years. And they will, they will describe it and explain it with a passion, with an anger, with a bitterness that is so fresh, like it happened yesterday. And again, without, to note, without critique, without judgment, that anger, that, that bitterness has come to own them and rule them. So again, the question this morning is, how can we, how can we, how can we find refuge from all of that? What are we to do? And how, is, is there a place to be found in God to find a refuge, escape from wrongs done to us, owning and controlling us? So not only do, does, does, does uh, wrongdoing often make us feel worthless, not only does it often make us uncontrol, uncontrollably angry or resentful, and finally, it can actually cause us to hurt others. I don't know if you've heard this phrase before, but it's very common among counseling. Wounded people wound others. Wounded people wound others. When I have been deeply wronged, deeply hurt, my, my, that is a vat of temptation. I want to escape some way. I want to get out so I want, I just want to hurt someone. Whatever it may be, I'll manipulate. Or whatever I'll do, I will hurt someone. We become like drowning swimmers. Right? What does a drowning swimmer do when, when someone comes to rescue them? They'll, just, they'll, just, they'll, you know, they'll climb up on them. They'll, they'll take them down. They'll try to actually drown the one who's rescuing them. Again, the question is, how can we find refuge from all of this? Let me ask this morning a really strange question. What if, the, what if, just think about this for a second, what if the wrongs done to us can actually be a means to grow closer to God and even praise Him? What if the abuse, what if the exploitation, what if the manipulation, the betrayal, what if those things can actually become a means of drawing closer to God, not, not further away, but closer to him and actually seeing aspects of who he is that we, that we, we haven't seen before? You know, in our, day, in our day and age, in our culture, the notion that God can get angry that he can be a God of wrath, is so unpopular. And I want to push back really hard on that this morning. Really hard. What if an angry God, listen to this, what if an angry God is actually a good thing? A good thing. Kids, when I was a kid, I, I played with the Legos. I love playing with Legos. I had this huge um, you know, bin or box of, of Legos, and I would play and create all these sort of things, this wonderful outlet for my imagination. And sometimes I would make something, and my brother, my older brother, brother six years older than I am, he would come along, and you know what he would do? He would, like, step on it or break it. You know what I mean? And I mean, who does that, right? Well, my brother does. My older brother did that, right? Okay, so, right? And we're best friends, by the way. We've gotten over this. We're, we're okay. But sometimes he would break it, and guess what? I didn't care. It's like, yeah. You know why I didn't care? Why didn't I care, kids? Why didn't I care if, if the Lego was broken? I could build it again. That's a good answer. 
Why else? That's good. I like that. It's a good. I could build it again. That's too charitable of your of me. But um, wh- why else? It was, wasn't a big deal. Why wasn't it a big deal? Because I didn't care about. I just didn't care about it that much. It was just I didn't really like it to begin with. It didn't really work out. It was just not. It wasn't a big. It was wasn't important to me. It didn't have much value to me. But there were other times when I would build something and I thought it was awesome. It was my creation. is what I made. I loved it. I treasured it. And my brother would come and step on it, and guess what would happen? World War III. <laughs> right? I would get angry. And why did I get angry? Because I valued, I valued what I had created. Listen to me. In Christian scripture, God values what he makes. He loves it. And when there's, as we're going to see in this text here, when there is wrongdoing, when someone that he has created is wronged, abused, exploited, betrayed, he takes it very seriously because he values. Listen to this. He sees you and me as worth getting angry for. Did you hear that? We are worth it. I mentioned earlier this young lady who was, had something terrible happen to her as a child and went to her, she went to her parents. And this, listen, understandably in the situation, again, I'm not excusing anything, but her parents chose to just sweep it under the carpet. They didn't get angry, they didn't get upset, they pretended like nothing happened. How do you think she felt in terms of worth? Apparently, she wasn't worth getting angry about. And Psalm 9 says something that's exactly the opposite. So let's just turn, let's take a few minutes here, give me about 10 minutes or so, and we'll consider this passage. Psalm 9, listen to this, Psalm 9 is kind of embedded in this little group of psalms, from Psalm 7 to 11, that all in their own way kind of deal with this idea of injustice. In fact, Psalm 7, listen to this. If you have ever been in a situation where you have done nothing wrong and you have been falsely accused, Psalm 7 is for you. It really is. It's about, it's a psalm where David is saying, listen, I have done nothing wrong. In this particular case, yeah, I'm guilty in all these other areas. But in this particular situation, I have been totally, completely, in every way I have been wrong that I am innocent. In fact, if you want to just look there on page 465, he, verse 3, just the Psalm 7, just, just to show you here, uh, he says this. He says, Lord my God, if I have done this, that is, if I have done something wrong, and there is guilt on my hands, if I have, re- if I have repaid my ally with evil, or withheld, or without cause, have robbed my foes. He says, look, I haven't, you know, if I've done this without cause, verse 5, then let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. He's saying, look, I haven't done a thing wrong here. And if I have, all right, let me get it. Let me, let, let me see, let me get my, my just desserts. And then he calls for the Lord to rise up and to act, and to act on his behalf. And the, the rest of the psalm is just so beautiful. In fact, I've, I've, uh, several summers ago, I preached on this psalm, if you want to go back and listen to the sermon sometime. But Psalm 7 has to do with the notion of injustice, of being uh, at a personal level, of being wronged in a way, misrepresented, um, uh, of, being, of being falsely accused, and what to do with that. And Psalm 7 has such wonderful, I have, I have used Psalm 7 in my life in so, so many times in so many ways to, um, to escape 
the, uh, this, the, the, the way in which anger and bitterness can, can just consume you. And there's some beautiful things in Psalm 7 that are just brilliant. Psalm 8 is this amazing reminder of the dignity of all human beings. It's smacked right in there amongst these, 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 these psalms about injustice to remind us that as great as, our, as the depravity of our oppressor may be, they are still actually people who have dignity and worth. And that brings us to Psalm 9 and 10. And actually, Psalm 9 and 10, you wouldn't have reason to know this. There might be a note, uh, footnote there in, the, in, the, in, the, um, in your pew Bible. But Psalm 9 and 10 were likely originally one psalm. Together they form what's called an acrostic. What in the world is an acrostic? An acrostic is this, there's, it's a type of poem in which every verse begins with successive letters of the alphabet. So the first, uh, the first uh, line begins with an A, the second line with a B, then with a C, of course, this is Hebrew, so it's alpha, uh, alpha, beta, gamma, I'm sorry, aleph, bet, um, uh, gimel, dalet. Okay, does that make sense? So you have this, you have this and, and the whole idea is that the psalm goes from A to Z, and you're describing something from A to Z. That's the whole idea. It's like, so Psalm 34, for example, is an acrostic about God's salvation. And it's a way of saying, he has saved me in air completely. From A to Z, he has saved me. And what's so interesting about Psalms 9 and 10, it's an acrostic about divine justice. And guess what? There are letters missing. Isn't that interesting? It's not an accident. It's like, hey, guess what? Something's missing here. We can't fully understand God's justice. There's something not right here. Right? And it's not accusing God. It's just saying it's just, a, there's just, it's just we just don't fully get it. It doesn't fully make sense. Okay, so there's, it's, and, and what, even more than that, Psalm 9 and, Psalms 9 and 10 together, it's really a challenge. It's been interesting to see scholars try to find the order or the flow of thought in the psalm. And so many of them are like, nah, I have no idea. You know why? Because it's disorderly. It's chaotic. And I think that reflects the experience of the afflicted. Like, let me just give you an example. Look, in, look, look on page 466. Uh, on, on chapter, Psalm 9, verse 9. It says, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. That's this statement of confidence. It's a statement of faith. It's a statement of, of this is what we know to be true theologically from Scripture. So do you see that phrase? A stronghold in times of trouble. Now look in, look in, look in Psalm 10, verse 1. Just right across the, the column there. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself, what? In times of trouble. Do you see that? So in Psalm 9, he's saying, we know that you are a stronghold in times of trouble. In Psalm 10, he's saying, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? I know, I know theologically, I know up here that you're a stronghold in times of trouble. But right now, I feel like what? Why do you hide yourself? You're hiding yourself in times of trouble. And here, trouble... The Hebrew word for trouble is, has to do with affliction, pressure, stress, distress, persecution. You're being wronged in some way. There's a sense there's usually a human element to that idea of trouble, of being, of being uh, afflicted in some way, mistreated by others. Okay, so, so we see here. Um, so, let me, so again, let me just ask this question. I'm going to walk through these few verses of Psalm 9 here. What, what if the wrongs done to us can actually be a means to grow closer to God and even to praise him, 
to see an aspect of him that we hadn't seen before. Let me just give another illustration. I use the, the, the Lego illustration. Let me give another one. When I was a kid, listen to this, kids. When I was a kid, one evening we were at the dinner table, and I mouthed off to my mom right in front of everybody. I said something like, you know, I disrespected her in some way. It was really, it was not good. And there was kind of this silence, and suddenly I was looking at my mom. My dad's over here. And suddenly someone pounds on the table. Boom! <laughs> I look over, and everyone kind of freaks out. My dad stands up and tells me to go to my room. And he, is, he is upset, like visibly upset. He told me to go to my room and wait for a spanking. Now, why did my dad get upset? I mean, I had not done anything wrong to him. Right? And what's his beef? I'm talking to my mom. You know what I mean? This is... Right? Kids, why, why, why was he upset? Why was he mad? I had done nothing wrong to him. Okay? The reason he was angry is because I had hurt someone he loved. And guys, husbands, there's a hidden parable in there. Right? That makes sense? But always back mom. Always back your wife in parental situations. You can disagree with her behind doors, but not there in the moment. Okay? But he backed, uh, he backed my mom. He loved her. He, uh, he, I was mistreating something or someone that he held dearly. Again, what if anger is actually a sign of love? So let's, let's walk through this real quickly. Psalm 9. David begins, I will worship. I'm going to worship the Lord Okay, he's, he's been wrong, but he's actually, it's already he's at this place of worship. I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell, all, all, excuse me, I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. Okay, that word wonderful deeds there is this way of, of speaking of wonders, of things that God, and God alone, that God and God alone can do to reverse the situation. Does that make sense? In fact, so he's, he's, he's exulting, he's celebrating. It's a public thing. I will recount all of your wondrous deeds. He's saying, I'm going to go public with the kind of God you are. You are a God who acts in ways that are game-changing. Um, think of those of you, think of like when you watch an athletic sport and, and you see a crowd just go crazy because a certain play has just happened that changes the game. Like when I was a kid, I used to watch the Chicago Bulls. It was the heyday of the Chicago Bulls in the late 80s and 90s. And I can remember a game, it was a playoff game versus the, the, the Cleveland Cavs. And it was down to the wire, three seconds left, and of course they fed the ball. Chicago had the ball. Who'd they give it to? Michael Jordan. Three seconds left, top of the key. Just hang, he jumps up there, hangs there for about five or six seconds while all these people fly by. And then he shoots, and then he goes in. And it's just unbelievable. And then after that, he, like, he like jumps. He, he's so excited. He jumps up. And again, it's a very memorable footage. You've probably seen it. He jumps up in the air to just you know, like celebrate. He jumps like six feet off the ground. It's just unbelievable. You're like... Anyway, so, but it's this moment of game-changing. It's this wondrous sense where the fortunes have changed. Everyone thought it was going to go this way. Everyone thought the wicked were going to get away with it. Everyone thought the abuser would go away scot-free. Everyone knew that it was over. Game over. And suddenly this event comes that changes everything, that suddenly all fortunes are reversed. He's saying, and I praise you because of that, because you were a God who really will hold the, the, the guilty accountable. They won't get away. They really won't get away with it. I will worship you for your wonders 
Well, what particular kinds of wonders? Verse 3, I will worship you because you're the one who's watching out for me. Got that? I will worship you, verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 through 6, I will worship you who are the one who watches out for me. My enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have, you, you have upheld my right and my cause, sitting enthroned as the righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken my enemies. You have uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. Understand who's writing this is King David. The guy's got enemies. And not just like individual enemies. He's got whole nations who want to see him dead. Think about that. He's got a lot of, a lot of people who really don't like him. And he's saying, you know what, God, you can take care of this. You have taken care of it. In fact, David saw numerous military victories, etc., etc. And he's celebrating the ways that God in the past has acted. Okay? But that's not even more than that. He says, I will worship you. I'll worship, I'll worship you as the one who's watching out for me. But you're not just watching out for me. You're watching out for everyone. Look at verses 7 and 8. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the peoples with equity. And not only is he watching out for me, or that is for David, watching out for all, but he's especially watching out for whom? The oppressed. Look in verses 9 and 10. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Listen to this. When we are wronged, God sees and he knows. And as, as the uh, verses that are about to get to you will say, he remembers. And so David says, I'll worship you. I'll worship your wonders. I'll worship the one who's watching out for me and for all and especially for the oppressed. And then he, t- he says to the reader, worship the one who won't forget. Look at verses 11 and 12. Sing the praises of the Lord enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. For he who avenges blood, that is to say the one who who meets out justice, he remembers. He does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. Listen, the wrongs that have been done to you, people will forget. Even those, those closest to you, they will forget. They won't treat it as seriously as they should. And it'll be forgotten. And you've got to decide, is there really a God who really sees and who really remembers? And can I trust him with that? And can I believe that he's more angry about it than I am? And that he's better at addressing, he will address this perfectly. I will never respond to a wrong done to me in, this perfect, in a perfect way, I won't. If you made me judge of the situation and decide what, what should happen to this person for doing what they did to you, how well would I do? I wouldn't know. I'd be like, well, I mean, I'd probably overkill, probably overkill, or I'd, whatever. I don't know. I would not do it with justice and perfection that he does. And the question is, can I entrust, can I entrust the wrong done to me to the Lord? Can, I, can he be a refuge for me in that, in that, in that circumstance? And then after, after a calling for worship, we find this, this, this beautiful state. David himself still has enemies. And so he asks, he says, work justice for me. This is in verse 13 and 14. 
He says, Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and listen. He's, he's making this plea, it's petition in verses 13 and 14. And then in verses 15 through 18, this is so cool. He says to us, he says, listen, you've been wronged. Or there's been oppression. We're, we're witnessing oppression. He says, wait and watch while God works. Look at verses 15 and 18. This is so cool. The nations have fallen into the pit that they have dug. You know, so often we look, at, we, look, we look at the world today and we look at segments of society that are maybe oppressive, that are wrong, that are, that are, hurt, that are, bringing, that are bringing ill to the world, bringing ill to our country, whatever it may be. And we think there's no, they're, they're, they're so strong. They're, we're outnumbered. I mean, how, how are these forces ever going to be overcome? And the answer is that they'll, they'll actually undo themselves by God's by God's amazing providence, that they actually come to destroy themselves. Verse 15, the nations have fallen into the very pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net that they have hidden. The Lord is known by his acts of justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. And this is one of the most, one of the most important things, listen to this gang, that you can recognize in the face of injustice. Listen. The one who's wronged you is not getting away with anything. They're not. They, are not. they will not one day, but even now they are not. That the way that David, the way that the Scripture understand evil doing, it's like, a, it's, like a, um, it's like a boomerang. Kids, you know what a boomerang is? Right? You throw this boomerang and go, ha, ha, it's gone. <laughs> right? And then what, guess, where, where, where's, where's it coming? Right back at you. There's a sense in which he's, what does he say? He says, the nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. That's happened at the, that happens at the collective level. Individually, if I turn back to Psalm 7 real quick, you'll see that it happens, uh, it happens at the personal level too. For, look at verse 14. This is page 465, Psalm 7, verse 14. Who, listen to this, this amazing, uh, this gestational analogy here, the metaphor that, uh, that, that David uses. Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. He's saying, don't envy those who have wronged you. Don't think that somehow this is not going to come back and haunt them. Not in some karma-like way, but in the sense that, that when people pursue a path of oppression, it destroys them. It eats them up. It is, it is something that actually is inherently self-destructive. He continues, verse, verse 15, whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. Again, when I have seen people who have, when I've seen people, when I have people in my own life who've, been, who've wronged me in deep ways, and it's not like I'm wanting them to fall into their own pit. It's not that. It's more the idea that, listen, don't think they're getting away with anything. So then finally, in the very end of verse, verse uh, going back to Psalm 9, the very last part, is this, this is cry for God to work justice. Again, uh, he says in verse 19, Arise, Lord, do not let mortals triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, Lord. Let the nations know that they are only mortal. See, at the very end of the day, and I think this is just so crucial. I mean, I, I won't take the time, but... Um, you know, it, we live in a time, the last 10, 15 years, of unprecedented calls for justice. 
racial justice, class justice, justice in terms of gender and sexuality, these cries for justice, and we're divided up, right? Uh, we're divided up into categories of race, of class, of gender, etc., etc. Degrees of oppression, people longing for justice. That's, by the way, that's called, what's called identity politics. And there's this, and listen, there is nothing more fundamental and more important and more human than a longing for justice. But the question is this, and I'll leave you with this. Can we humans on our own bring about that justice? So the psalmist is basically saying, God, if there's going to be justice, you have to do it. None of us mortals, none of us humans, we don't know what we're doing. We don't. And I'll close with this quote. This is taken from Josh Mitchell, who's a professor of political theory at Georgetown. It's in a book called American Awakening. Listen to this. I think it's so good. He says, the Greeks and the Romans of old and the Hebrews and the Christians too, they knew that divine things were not to be trifled with. Identity politics elicits man's deepest longing for justice in a broken world, the resolution of which was long understood to be so mysterious, so awesome, and so apocalyptic that justice was placed outside of mortal reach. Does that make sense? In other words, this is essential. We know that things are so messed up in terms of injustice. There's, just so much, uh, there's so much oppression everywhere that if things are actually to be worked out, who's going to work them out? None of us. Right? None of us. It's going to have to come from, from above, from outside. Someone's going to have to sit on a throne and exercise justice in a way that we never could. Identity politics dares to tamper with this, this sober and reverential insight and claims to put justice within man's conceptual grasp. Those who believe they have a grip on it, who think they can put it into political use on their behalf, do not understand that identity politics will turn against all who seek to enlist it. And he quotes Hosea, They that sow the wind shall reap the whirlwind. The longing for justice is a noble longing instilled in the heart of man, nearest and dearest to him, at times more important than bread and water, and at the same time mysteriously elusive and finally unfathomable. If we think that we can come to a place of justice apart from God, we have placed ourselves in the place of God. Okay? And listen, I, I, I mean, and so, I mean, this is a whole other, let me just say, I mean, it is, you look at the 20th century and you look at where racial justice happened, where it originated, and what's the answer, gang? The church. It is the church of Jesus Christ. And listen, the church was also a culprit. Oh my goodness. Was it a culprit? But it was also an amazing part of the solution. Our hope is not in princes. It is not. It is in the Prince of Peace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.